Morning, everybody. Yes, we do believe in the fervent power of prayer. Um, we, uh, we consider ourselves to be a church that follows the pattern out of Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and fellowship, and to prayer. And so we make a regular practice of praying together. We pray together when we meet corporately on Sundays. We encourage our small groups when they're breaking bread and having fellowship to pray during that time. And then we also have a call to gathering once a month on the first Wednesday of every month, which is actually this coming Wednesday, for the whole church to come together and pray. And so I encourage you, if you don't have anything going on this Wednesday, or even if you do, to come out and pray with us, to gather together, to proclaim God's goodness, to um, shout glory for Him, and actually to beseech Him for our community, for our region, for our whole world, um, be praying that his, um, his efforts continue going forth mightily and how we can partner with Him within that. So please come out and join us this Wednesday for prayer. Um, prayer is a part of the, the spiritual colliding with the physical. It's God doing divine things in ways that we're not necessarily going to understand. Uh, this is actually a major theme of what we were talking about last week and what's going to actually tie into what we're talking about this week, the spiritual colliding with the physical. And some difficulties we can have in understanding that. The analogy we gave last week, if you weren't here, is how would you explain the color red to someone who has never had sight? And that's what we're going to be working with a little bit today. We're actually going to be working with it in weeks to come because we're going to go through the foundational book of the Bible, Genesis. The things where everything begins, everything is set in motion, everything builds upon this book. If we want to be able to understand the entirety of Scripture, you must understand the foundation that it's built upon. It is a unified story. It's not just bits and pieces and all, I'll just look at this for information here, I'll look at this for information here. No, it all comes together in this one unified story. And I say the word story not in the sense of like a fairy tale, but simply the common word we use for this collection of accounts. This, this narrative of the great work that Jesus did for us. And so we're going to begin here out of Genesis. Now, with this, uh, there's going to be some things that are going to challenge you today. Challenge how you've read through this before. Because I can almost guarantee everyone in this room, this is the most read passage. Because at one time or another, you all decided, I'm assuming, that you're going to read through the Bible. <laughs> and where do you begin? you open to Genesis 1. And you might have done that six or seven times. Whether you read through the whole Bible six or seven times is an entirely different story. But you started there, and so you've read this a lot. Most people have read this a lot. They have some really strong ideas that are associated with this, and there's a lot of ideas pervasive within our culture of some inaccuracies of this, some inaccuracies of the Bible as a whole. I can recall growing up, different ideas about um, heaven and earth and what happens after you die. When you die, you go up to heaven, it's the clouds, and you, you become an angel, and there's streets of gold, and anything you could imagine, that's what's there, and that's not necessarily what Scripture is saying. And so we have to take what Scripture is saying and figure out a way to work through that, because there's going to be some um, interesting things here that we might not have seen before that I'm going to point out. And some things I'd like you to consider, because I believe as the advent of the theory of evolution within our culture has been so strongly pushed, we have dramatically entrenched ourselves with a particular idea. And we haven't really thought a whole lot beyond it. And we refuse to be stretched on it either. And so I'm going to do a bit of stretching today. 
Because if you look at Genesis 1 as a scientific account, because that's our culture. We are the age of information, and we are a product of the scientific revolution. Everything is a proof. If you look at Genesis 1 as a scientific document, you will be broken by Genesis 2. Because Genesis 2 is also an account of creation, but things are not in the, right, in the same order. I'm not going to say right order. They're not in the same order as they are in Genesis 1. And how do you rationalize and reason through that? If it is a scientific account, and this is precisely the order, the moment you get to Genesis 2, it doesn't, doesn't collide. It doesn't work anymore. And I don't believe we serve a God of disorder. I believe we serve a God of answers and of order. And so the overall emphasis is perhaps we've missed the point. And perhaps we've missed what's being said here. And how do we understand it? And so in order to help us walk through this, I'm going to ask a very important question that you may not have considered before, and some of you may have. When does something exist? We're going to talk about the bringing of existence of all things this morning. So when does something exist? Because a lot of times we get entrenched with our idea, our perspective on this passage, and I read this, and it means that. When God says it was so, and God says he created it, what happened there? What did that actually look like? A lot of us have a preconceived idea of this, a notion of it happened exactly this way. It would, everything is in full form because it said it exists, and that must be what that means. It just poofed into full form. But is, was, is that what existence means? full formed. We'll just use the idea of a person. When does a person exist? Does a person only exist when they're full formed? If we believe that to be true, that means children don't exist. Babies don't exist. The conception of the womb doesn't exist because it's not full formed. When does something exist? Are you only existing if you're alive? When you die, do you cease to exist? Or is there something of you that carries on? So what does it actually mean to be human? What is human? Is it the shell? These are things we have to work through when we're talking about God calling things into existence. And how did it actually turn out? And I would encourage you, if, you if you're struggling with just hearing me say this a little bit, and that's okay. It's okay to be, um, I don't know what you're saying there, Joe. I would highly encourage you, and this actually, I didn't think of this on my own. It popped in my mind when a good brother in Christ, Chris Reigels, right after the service, said, things too wonderful for me to know. He used that phrasing. That phrasing comes from Job 42. And I would encourage you, if you're struggling with this, please turn after the service to Job 38 and read Job 38. 39, 40, 41, and 42. When God is talking to Job about, were you there when I did it? To be able to say, you know how it was done. Job had Genesis. Job had the same account we're about to read, and God is saying, were you there? You're claiming to know all these things. Were you there? In Job 42, when after God has really called him to account, he says this, I know that you can do all things 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is the emphasis of Genesis 1. I know that you, Lord, can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I would, like, I would just like to ask us all to step out into a, a place of faith and humility as we go through Genesis 1. There might be some things that we don't fully understand. God is trying to explain to us the color red. How do we work through that? And there's going to be some, some things in here that are purposeful because it was written to people 3,500 years ago. And for the time and place they were in, and it was written to them as a commentary about what was going on around them. I'm going to explain that in a moment. And to do that, we have to take a little journey. So we're going to throw up a map. After the first account of man, which we're going to get to in the chapters again, when Adam was born, that's when we start recording time from his birth and his age. And we go from there. We know that 2,500 years later, we have Moses. Moses is the one who actually finally wrote all this down. So what happened in between? Well, we know Eden was formed somewhere there. We don't know. There's no signpost. Eden was here. But we do know there was some terrible stuff that happened in between, and eventually Abraham was born. And Abraham was born here on this first X that is Ur of the Chaldeans. And that's right near Babylon. And... Anybody who's vaguely familiar with the Bible, Babylon has never anything real good attached to it. That's where he's born. That, those are his people. Those are his ancestors. He would have known everything about them. And then his family traveled up to the top X, that's Haran, and there they settled for a while, and that's where Abraham heard from God, go, go to the land of Canaan. So he did. He came down right about to the middle of Israel, and there's a place called Shechem where he built an altar to the Lord after he heard from him, and he told him, this is the land you are going to possess. Abraham never did that, but he believed in the Lord. He had, and God deemed him righteous because of his faith. The family eventually came down to Egypt for a long time, and they came out, and they wandered here for about 40 years going in circles, and eventually came up around, and they finally made it to possessing the land of Canaan. And it's at this point that Genesis was written down for the first time. So it's been carried for 2,500 years from person to person being told to them, an account. Now, that might be concerning for you, that it was just told from person to person to person. Anyone who's played a single game of telephone, <laughs> this should be a concerning factor. What's been mixed up and I would like to give you confidence and faith in this scripture is that Moses spoke to the Lord face to face. And any confusion, the Lord would have righted when this was being recorded for us. But during this time, during these travels, they've come across a lot of people in Mesopotamia, a lot of mixed up ideas, a lot of things that aren't right that people were drawn away from. And so a part of Genesis 1 is going to be a commentary on those groups, three specific. The first one is Babylon. The second one is Egypt. 
And the third one is the Canaanites. I'm going to point them out as we come across them. So beginning in Genesis 1, if you're going to take anything away from today, let it be this. God is in control. God is the creator. There's none other than he. Two, there is order to this world and to this universe. And there's order to your life when you seek him. And three, God sees you. God cares about the great and God cares about the small, the vast and the seemingly insignificant. He cares about every detail. God ever knows every hair on your head or every lack thereof. <laughs> he knows every thought you've had. He knows every triumph and every failure. He knows you intimately. God sees you. This is the emphasis of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God created. There's a term for this. is creatio ex nihilo. This means creation from nothing. In all the groups around, almost every single one is the watery abyss. And that's where everything came out of. The first god either was the watery abyss or it came out of the watery abyss. And then all the other gods spawned out of this. And they created everything from this. But it all becomes from the abyssal waters. That's where all life comes from. Something that was already there. No, the only thing that was already there is the god. And he created the waters. They're just a part of creation. They are not divine. They are not a God themselves. It's just something God created, a part of his good world. But everything was tohu vavohu, wild and waste, desolate, uninhabitable for life. When we look at all the worlds around us and all the vast universe, everything that we can manage to see with telescopes and things, it's all tohu vavohu. You look at all the planets, there isn't anything that looks like anything to live there. Here it's perfect. It's precision in its order. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And we have to consider the darkness itself isn't evil and was never intended to be evil. It's part of God's good design. There should be no fear of the darkness, although we find ourselves afraid when it's dark, but it should be focused on the not that the, it's dark, but what is in the dark that has corrupted it. The darkness itself is simply a part of God's design. It's a separation of the light and the day and the night. But we should understand that it does not belong to evil and it never did in the first place. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. By the word of his power, there is no struggle. There's no wrestling, there's no fighting, there's no overcoming. It's simply, let it be. And it is. God is not struggling with creation. God is in absolute control. And what he says is. And the second thing to note here, there is no sun on this day. 
and yet there is light. This is a massive commentary on the people of this time because they worship the sun as the giver of light and life to mankind. And so what's being said here is no. No. No, that's just a big ball of fire that God put there. The origin of light and life is in the Lord. And we do not turn that over to something else. It is from God that all of this comes to us. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, there was morning the second day. I tried to rationalize through this, just thinking for a moment, you've got a globe that's covered in water, and then he separates the waters from the waters. That means some waters are going up, and it says they're above the expanse. That word expanse is the rakia. That word rakia is commonly used for pounded metal. It's the dome around our earth is what, how people most of the time see it. Our atmosphere, it's an amazing thing. It keeps things out we don't want here, and it keeps everything that needs to be here in. But it says the waters are above it. I know I've talked to different people and try to rationalize this. Well, that's the clouds. Like, the clouds are not above the rakia. They're under it, where the birds are. We've been above the rakia. There's nothing there. Space it goes and it goes and it goes. So does that mean that's the edge of what he's talking about? Or is it the edge of our universe and there are waters out there somehow? It's going to break your brain if you try to look at this as a scientific document. It's not the intent of it. The intent of it is to understand that this is a part of God's ordered world. The intent of describing things this way is actually really specific. It's the first nod at Egypt. Egypt worshipped Shu, which is the air, and Nut, which is the sky, and Tufnut, which is moisture, and Geb, which is the earth. It thought these things were actual gods that they worshipped. I keep kicking myself because I should have gotten the, the picture of the, um, the scroll. It actually shows a picture of a god bending over, and that's the sky, and that's a god we worship, and it showed a god laying down, and that's the earth that we worship, and it showed a god doing this, and that's the air that we worship. <laughs> that's how they saw the world, and they're saying, no! There's only one god. That's just the stuff God made so we could live here because we can't live here without it. Stop trying to attribute all of these things to something other than God. That's actually something we start to realize in our world that's similar. We're trying to attribute everything to explain away God somehow. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Let the earth, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning the third day. So at this point, God has created all the natural phenomena that are required for life, and he's named them. It's water, land, sky, 
light, darkness, vegetation, and the idea of fertility and food. God has named all these things. There's a pervasive idea within Near Eastern culture that naming something implies ownership. God has named all these things. He is the owner of it all. He is the creator of it all. It is all subject to him. They are not living beings that are in contestation with the Lord. They're part of his ordered universe so that life can exist. And so important, every single piece of this is vital. The plants, so much more so than I ever really deemed. I read this when I was doing some research during this week. It says, photosynthesis, the process by which green plants and certain other organisms transform light energy into chemical energy. But that is incredible, just on its own. We're just now figuring out how that works. That's how we're doing solar panels. Plants have always been able to do that. And it's incredible. During photosynthesis in green plants, light energy is captured and used to convert water, carbon dioxide, which is highly poisonous to human beings, and minerals into oxygen and energy-rich organic compounds. It would be impossible to overestimate the importance of photosynthesis in the maintenance of life on Earth. If photosynthesis ceased, there would soon be little food or other organic matter on Earth. Most organisms would disappear, and in time, Earth's atmosphere would become nearly devoid of gaseous oxygen. We live in an ordered world. In perfect design and unison. So it all comes together to bring life. And the commentary, the nudge, the nod, is that none of that required the sun. Life is not derived from the sun. You need light, but you don't need this big ball of fire that everybody seems to be worshiping during this time. Don't be drawn away from the Lord. Now, there's an interesting design in Genesis 1, just the literary design. In the first three days, we have light and darkness formed, sea and sky formed, and the fertile earth formed. Everything necessary for life, and these are three separate spaces. And in the next three days will be what fills those spaces. The lights of day and night and the stars, the moon and the sun, day five, creatures of the water and the air, and day six, creatures of the land. All the things that fill those spaces in God's good design. And when we see these things and we learn more about things and we know an incredible amount about these things, all of that is intended to draw you closer to God, to see his handiwork in awe and all of it and to bring you awe, not to pull you away from him, not to think that somehow we have achieved so much more in our knowledge and our capabilities that we can disprove him in some way, because we've simply figured out what was already there. It's always meant to bring us back to him in the understanding of his beautiful, ordered world. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night 
and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. It was evening, morning, and the fourth day. And we just saw the sun, the moon, and stars being created, right? That's what we read. Sun, moon. Anybody read sun and moon? Why on earth would it not have named the sun and the moon? Are we asking the question, why? Because he's named everything else. Why didn't he name those two things? Nobody talks like this. Nobody says, look, the greater light has risen in the east. (laughs) Nobody says that. They don't even say that in the rest of scripture. They say the sun rose. The moon is shining upon us. Why isn't it there? They've just been created. This is significant. These are the most worshipped things that pull people away from God. Why aren't they named? This is actually a significant point, and that's the second nod at the Canaanites. So they, they do have words for the sun and the moon. It's not a simply absence of this. And what do we call that? No, the Hebrew word for day or for sun is shemesh, and the Hebrew word for the moon is yarek. The Canaanite deities for those two things are shemesh and yarek. It's the same exact pronunciation. They are so insignificant. They are so not a god. We're not even going to associate that word with them. They're just the big light and the lesser light. We will not acknowledge even for a moment that belief. We will not let you grab onto that in any way because it's wrong and you should not be worshiping. There was so much concern of it. It's repeated over and over again. It's right out of Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, it says, And beware lest you raise your eyes to the heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Allotted for a specific purpose. Not to be worshipped, but to help your ordered world. Therefore, signs. Now that word signs can mean like a literal signpost to represent something or as a portent. Most people have really grabbed onto that portent idea. And this is where astrology comes from. Not astronomy. There's nothing wrong with astronomy. It's a great study. It's understanding the order of everything that's not on the earth. Astrology, on the other hand, is a, try to, is a way of trying to predict the future and what's going to happen in your life based on where the stars are in alignment and movement and the planets and the celestial bodies. And that's a corruption of what was meant to be within this. That's where the whole zodiac and everything comes from. But it's meant to be a literal signpost. I want you to consider a moment a world that exists without the sun, the moon, and stars, but you have light, you have day, and you have night, and you wake up. How do you go north? Compasses don't exist. How do you go north? How have people always done that? Well, the sun rises in the east, and it sets in the west, and when the stars come out, the north one's always there. They're literally there as a signpost to tell you where you are, to help you make sure you know where you're going. And for seasons, that word is festivals, to tell you what time of year it is. 
so you can keep track, to give day and night and years so you're not just left wandering and wondering. God has given amazing things in our world to help guide us and give it order, structure, so we can keep track, so we know where we're going, but never to pull ourselves away from Him. Now, they do have portents to them, but it's not about their movements. It's about what's to come. It's out of Luke 21. It says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heavens will be shaken. And there will, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And it's talking about Revelation 6, verse 12. When the sun is turned to sackcloth and the moon to blood, and the stars fall from heaven, you will know something's happening. It will be a sign. A sign that the end has come. But they're really there just to give order to the world, to give shape, to give direction, to give guidance. So you're not lost and wondering. And God said, let the waters swarm of living, with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves in which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and the, let the birds on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And I read this initially and it feels very innocuous on its face because we're reading it in English. That word, particularly in the English standard version of the Bible, the word for sea creatures Great sea creatures does not give the full feel to what's going on here. The Hebrew word is the tanin. The tanin is the sea monster, the sea dragon, the dragon, or the serpent. We read about the tanin out of Isaiah 27. It says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea ideas of the chaos monsters, these creatures of the deep, these demons of water that are in great conflict with our world. And this is the third nod at Babylon. Because in the Babylon creation account, Marduk, their great creator God, is in vast conflict with Tiamat, the water goddess represented as a great sea serpent. And only through great conflict and struggle was he barely able to overcome and thus have victory over the world and create the world. When in fact, the scriptures are saying, it's just a big fish. <laughs> it's not something to pull you away from God. It's incredibly powerful out there. It's an amazing part of God's creation. And you should not just get in a little boat and go mess with it. God's creation is incredible, but some of it is dangerous. We need to walk in humility and be wary, but it's still just a big fish. It is not in competition with God. There is no adversity. There's no overcoming. There's no great conflict between the Lord and these things. There is only one God. There's only one creator, and he is in absolute control. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Every little thing on the earth, he created every minute detail. Every living organism on this planet has something called DNA. Deoxyribonucleic acid. I did it well that time. <laughs> everything, not only everything, every cell of your body has this. Is a long molecule, molecule that contains in animals and all known living organisms entire genetic code. Every cell in the body is created with identical strands of DNA. DNA determines each cell's structure and function, therefore determining the overall appearance, health, and actions of the entire animal. All inherited traits are transmitted by an animal to its offspring in the DNA. Dogs, cats, humans, each contain approximately 2.5 to 3 billion base pairs in their DNA. That's one strand. Each cell has that, comprising about 20,000 to 25,000 individual genes. It's incredible, the level of design and care and detail. And when I read this, I spent actually quite a bit of time looking at research papers on how do people who don't believe in God explain this? How does the evolutionary theory explain this? And a lot of incredibly smart people, people that really are just desperate for an answer. They're so desperate for an answer because if you don't believe in God, you need an answer. You have to be able to give an account somehow. I mean, they just, they're just going on and on. I read this article, it was pages and pages about the warm pools and how the warm pools, if the conditions were just right after the cooling, enough water had gathered and we know they, there, there wouldn't be all the right amount of stuff in there, so we'd have to have meteorites fall down and there'd have to be enough of them and they'd have to be the right size because if they're too big, you just get a crater and if they're too small, they burn up and if it just worked just right, it could work. And we've, we've made different situations that we've recreated and we've seen it happen where it made two things of 200 length. How do you go from 200 to 2 billion? It is so unlikely that it happened this way that even if it did, it could only be God that did it. And that's what I'm finding when I was reading through all these different articles talking about evolution and the most common argument is the eye. And they're like, everyone talks about the eye. It could happen after 364,000 years. That's all it would take. And you have to consider they're very optimistic <laughs> because anything in evolution is described as spaghetti on the wall. Let's see if something works. And... It's saying that this happens enough times and consistently, but you have to realize, in order for a genetic change to happen, that's an accident. That was not intended to happen. When things recreate, you want the same product. You don't want variations. And so when something strange happens, such as like the development of the eye, that's not something that was meant to be there in the first place. And so you have to have enough happy accidents over and over and over and over again into the same place. Because they talk about like, of course that would have happened. Why? Why do you assume that of course that would have happened other than we're here and so something did happen. But over and over again, this idea that it's going to develop on that same part of the body even. 
as opposed to other places. And we have this desperation to make it work. Even within their writings, there's, they speak as if there's a designer. They don't say it, but when you read what they write, they talk about evolution like it's a person who's tweaking and fiddling in this work and that work, and that's, that's not what's going on according to what you're describing, and yet it's still there. Why? Because God. Because there is a designer. Yeah. How did he do it exactly? I don't know. That's the whole thing about Job 38 to 42. We're not quite sure. We weren't there. He did something, though. God created. God is in control. God has put order to this world, and it is amazing. It is down to the minute detail. And so you can rest assured in every aspect of your life that God sees you there is not something you're dealing with that's too small. There's not something that's too minor. It's not insignificant to God because it's you and he loves you and he died for you. God sees you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with the seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. There's a lot of things we see in this. The first one is that God created us in his image. There's responsibility within that. What is that specific image? I'm not sure. Do we simply look like God? I don't know. I haven't met him face to face in person yet and I will someday and then I'll know them and so will you. Is it because we have the similar attributes of God? Is it because we have free will like God? Is it because we have authority that we've been given over things? Maybe it's because of all of these things. I'm not quite sure and it doesn't specifically say. But we are made in his image which we're which requires us to understand the responsibility that we have, that you are a representative God on this earth, not a God, representative of God on this earth. You are his image bearer, and you need to represent him well. And that we have been called to have dominion over this earth. We are given a great responsibility. Dominion, not domination. To subdue not subject. There are key differences in the calling. It's the calling of a caretaker. Someone who is going to care for the earth and the place and the things we've been given. To watch over them, to respect them, to honor them as something God has given over to us. And he made them male and female. 
no different in God's call for dominion over this earth and the responsibility of caring for this planet and representing God here. Made equal in God's image. Our roles within our own community are different and God will outline that later. But if on page one, you are all God's creations, you are all in his image, you are all equal in the sight of the Lord. No lesser, no greater. And it was so. God, by the power and the word of his will, begins things and ends things. There is no struggle. There is no challenge. There is just the Lord. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. God is in control. There is one creator who has designed all things. There is no conflict here. There is no other besides him. And he has set it in order, a specific design, in order that you can have within your life as well when we lean into the Lord and his purposes. And God sees you each and every one of you. Your faith can stand firm in the Lord. Amen.